Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, one of the hosts of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Eric Davis about his recent book, Death Power, Buddhism's Ritual Imagination in Cambodia, published by Columbia University Press in 2016. In this book, Davis explores funerary ritual in contemporary Cambodian Buddhism. Hello, welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, one of the hosts of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Eric Davis about his recent book, Death Power, Buddhism's Ritual Imagination in Cambodia, published by Columbia University Press in 2016. In this book, Davis explores funerary ritual in contemporary Cambodian Buddhism and the way in which Buddhist monks manage death such that its negative power is harnessed and used for the reproduction of morality and of a particular social reality. The book is organized around two themes, which serve as the warp over and under which Davis skillfully weaves the ethnographic detail resulting from his many years of fieldwork in Southeast Asia. The first of these two themes is binding. In the funeral itself, binding is both symbolic, as when the funeral ritualists contain the potentially malevolent spirits exiting the corpse, and physical, as when the corpse is bound with consecrated string. Davis sees this image of binding extending far beyond the funeral rite, however, and discusses the way in which Khmer culture itself is founded in part upon the binding or controlling of water, necessary in rice agriculture as practiced in Cambodia, and the binding of people, which is actualized as the enslavement of highland non-agricultural peoples by lowland-dwelling Cambodians. The second theme that runs throughout the book is the dichotomy between civilization and its other. Thus, we find in the Khmer imagination a distinction made between the civilized, moral, agricultural, deforested lowlands and the wild, amoral, forested highlands. In its firm association with civilization, agriculture, agriculture, and social hierarchy, Cambodian Buddhism legitimates this imagined dichotomy and renders the social world of the lowlands moral. Because Davis explains the nitty-gritty of the many rituals he discusses in larger theoretical terms, the book will be of great interest to both specialists and those with no knowledge of Cambodian Buddhism. On the more detailed side, he discusses not only funerals, but also the Sema ceremony, the domestication of ghosts by Buddhist monks, the feeding of ghosts and ancestors, witchcraft, the ordination of novice monks, slavery in Cambodia, Khmer origin legends, fertility rituals associated with rice cultivation, nagas, apotropaic tattoos, Khmer views of leftovers, of food that is, and a fascinating amulet that is supposedly created by ripping a fetus out of a living woman. But all of this is explained with reference to broader perennial themes, including Buddhism's management and power over death, reciprocity within the family and, more broadly, human society, the relationship between kingship and Buddhism, human sacrifice, the ambiguity that so often characterizes attitudes towards the deceased, the relationship between agriculture and social hierarchy, and the way in which Buddhism defines itself in opposition to an imagined amoral other. 
Specialists will learn something new about the particulars of Cambodian Buddhist ritual, Cambodian society, and funerary practice, while scholars of Buddhism and other religions will surely recognize familiar patterns even as they appreciate the idiosyncratic nature of Cambodian Buddhism. Furthermore, in addition to his rich first-hand accounts of various rituals and his examination of these rituals through a number of theoretical lenses, Davis concludes at the end of each of the book's nine chapters a vignette relating either a legend or an episode from his own time in the field that illustrates a particular point he is trying to make. This, along with the inclusion of 16 monochrome photographs from the author's fieldwork and a Khmer glossary, make this a very accessible book, despite its complexity and depth. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies. Today I'm with Eric Davis, and we're going to be talking about his recent book, Death Power, Buddhism's Ritual Imagination in Cambodia, published by Columbia University Press in 2016. Eric Davis is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at McAllister College. His research interests include contemporary religious movements, spirit possession, and the ritualization of ethnic boundaries. His past research has focused on funerary ritual in contemporary Cambodian society. We'll be talking about that today. While his most current work examines contemporary rebirth claims and narratives and what happens after they are made. From 2010 to 2013, he served as the president of the Thailand-Lao-Cambodia Studies Group of the Association of Asian Studies, and he currently serves on the Religion in Southeast Asia Committee in the American Academy of Religions. Eric, welcome to the show, and thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for having me on. I want to begin by asking how you came to the study of religion, Buddhism, and Cambodia, and then, more specifically, about how you came to focus on funerary practices in contemporary Cambodia, which is the topic of the book that we'll be discussing today. Sure. Thank you. Um, I guess the short version that I usually give to people is that I started my career in in studying Buddhism by talking to dead people in books, (laughs) and that this was primarily took the form of studying Sanskrit and Pali language. Um, And eventually I started being tired of talking to dead people in books and wanted to talk with living people. But of course there's some continuity because I started talking to living people about dead people. (laughs) Um, The longer version is that I've had a rather uneventful academic path. I started my undergraduate work in religious studies. Uh, I focused on Buddhism then. I did my master's degree in the history of religions, focusing on Buddhism, and my PhD in the same. So that's a pretty straight line and not terribly interesting. Um, When I was doing work primarily on Sanskrit and Pali language, this was undoubtedly a part of the fact, a function of the fact that I was studying those languages and reading them, but also partly a result of what Gregory Chopin has called uh, Protestant presuppositions in Buddhist studies. Mm. The notion that it's in the texts that we can see the real ancient Buddhism. Uh, I was raised in the Lutheran tradition, a very good Protestant uh, (laughs) child, and uh, I certainly had many of those presuppositions myself in my early studies. Yeah. Great. Um, So, item, and how did you come to focus specifically on funerary ritual and on Cambodia? That's a somewhat more complicated question. Um, When I was in in Seattle doing my master's work, um, I was developing theoretical interests in the social power that causes people to compete over caring for the dead. And this was an interest I'd actually developed without any reference to Buddhism. Hmm. Uh, it was my, my wife, Leah, and I had moved out to Seattle, and she works in Native American art history and museum work. And almost 
very shortly after we moved out there, there was a huge controversy about a body that was found uh, on the Columbia River on a native on native land. And the scientists called that body Kennewick Man, hmm. and the Native Nations called him the Ancient One. Turned out to be over 9,000 years old, and a few physical anthropologists got involved and sued the nations and the Army Corps of Civil Engineers to have access to the body uh, because they believed it was Caucasian. So they were applying racial categories way back, you know, almost 10,000 years back. Yeah. And this, this violated federal law, a federal law called Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. It got very complicated and there were multiple parties all competing over who got to ritualize and care for this dead body. Mm. And I was fascinated by this. this. And when I started doing work on contemporary Buddhist societies, that was a an interest I brought into it. Mm-hmm. And so when I started working on Buddhism in Cambodia, it was uh, a natural theoretical progression, although I was applying it to Buddhism really for the first time. Sure. Um, so the, I wanted to begin our discussion of the book by asking about your approach to your topic. Um, in the introduction, you note that you understand Cambodian Buddhist society or um, I suppose any society for that matter, to be an imagined society. Um, and here you're drawing on the work of the Greek scholar Cornelius Castoriadis, if I'm pronouncing it Castoriadis, correctly. yeah. And so what do you mean by this, that society is imagined? And more specifically, what are the implications for your book, or how does this play out in the current, uh, in the work we're talking about today? Thanks. Um, yeah, I don't oftentimes get a chance to talk about Cornelius Castoriadis, and I was a little worried in this book about introducing him. Uh, his work is somewhat complex, uh, but I, at the same time, it is how I'm approaching these things, and it seems somewhat dishonest to to not discuss him. Uh, Castoriadis's use of the word imaginary, it, the first thing to say is that it is absolutely not to say that it is not real. Mm-hmm. Um, instead we live in our imaginations, everything we encounter, everything we do with the world is given significance and meaning by being processed through our minds and our Mm -hmm. imaginations. Um, you oftentimes hear people in the United States, for instance, say that race is not real and therefore imagine that it, that it, you know, has no effect. Right. Um, well, we can say that both our things are true. Race yeah. is not a physical reality, but it certainly has an effect. That effect comes from the way in which our culture imagines race and specifically in the way it institutes those imaginations into our practices and societies. When I take from Castoriadis uh, his idea of the imagination, I attempt to discuss it in terms of how specific ways of thinking and seeing the world are regularized within a social group and instituted so that they persist over time. Mm -hmm. Um, Things do not persist indefinitely. And so the failure of things to persist is at least as interesting as the fact that they might occasionally persist. Sure. Um, So obviously one of the central themes of the book is death. Another one is ritual. And you early on in the book, you know, the scholars of religion and anthropologists um, have understood rituals reflecting social norms or further reifying those norms. And your understanding of ritual differs. How so? 
Yeah, I, I think it's well known that much of the study of ritual has focused on seeing it as as an enactment of a pre-existing set of beliefs. Uh, this is somewhat similar to the Protestant presuppositions of Gregory Chopin that I mentioned earlier. This view that proposes that beliefs exist in society before ritual practice, and that ritual is therefore an enactment of the beliefs, which is the ritual would be better or worse depending on how well it enacts the beliefs. If this were true, we would we should be able to look at individual rituals and say definitively that they are correct or incorrect, mm-hmm. and what they mean or should mean to those participating. But that's, I mean, that's obviously not the case. Anyone who has grown up inside of a religious tradition understands this. Children rarely have beliefs prior to their participation in religious rituals. Mm-hmm. Uh, as my colleague Jim Lane here at McAllister College has told me, you know, kids play whatever game is around. And in playing the game and learning to do better at approximating its rules, we tend to construct a more precise imagination of the significance of that ritual for ourselves. Uh And this imagine can and often is deeply shaped by texts and established by doctrine, but it isn't limited to those. Sure. So meaning in any ritual can exceed the code of its meaning Mm -hmm. that could be established for it. And so an imagination is not something that you can just look up in a book, in a reference book, and and understand precisely what it means. Great. So the work is ethnographic and anthropological in its approach, and – You did conduct some field work at a number of rural sites, but the book largely focuses on two temples and their attached crematoria in the Cambodian capital, um, Phnom Penh. Now, one temple was larger, wealthier, more middle class, and cleaner in appearance, while the other was smaller, less prosperous, and suffered from poor relations between the abbot and the crematorium staff. Would you please briefly describe the main sites for your field work? and mention how you went about choosing them? Sure. I moved to Cambodia with my wife, Leah. Uh, At the time, she was five months pregnant. Um, As a result, I was unwilling to move out into the rural countryside. Mm. Um, Many traditional ethnographies assume that the rural village is is where all the traditional knowledge and untouched tradition exists. Uh, There's always some element of truth to that. But having lived in very small towns myself, I know that rural villages are also terribly weird and idiosyncratic. Um, it's hard to confidently induce a theory of anything uh, from the practices of one village, uh, even if that village has strongly contrasting examples inside of it. Uh, the Khmer Rouge era, which you know cr- produced massive dislocation of the entire population, and the erratic resettlement that took place after, people are oftentimes not where they were prior to that period and families mm-hmm. around. Uh all that made it unlikely that I'd be able to examine my particular topic with any sort of substantive uh, results within a single village setting. So I ended up defaulting to the city for multiple reasons. Uh, Within Phnom Penh, my two primary temples were really quite different, as you mentioned. Uh, There there are two specific orders of Buddhism within Cambodia. Uh, The first is the Maha Nikai, uh, Maha Nikaya, the second and smaller is the Domayut or Damayuda uh, order. And that last order originated in Siam and was brought into Cambodia in the 19th century. Uh, both of the temples that I look at are part of the Maha Nikai order. So I don't really touch the Domayut order in this, in this work. The first temple, as you said, is a very middle class uh, affair. It's highly respected. It's a well-patronized temple. It's in the heart of the city. Uh, it had hundreds of residents, uh, including monks and resident students. It had a massive patronage network, which includes the prime minister himself. 
uh, that patronage was actually cultivated over the period when I was there. Uh, prior to just prior to my fieldwork, the old abbot had passed away, and prior to that, the temple was more politically affiliated with a democratic opposition party. There was a, a very nice crematorium area. Uh, there were different pavilions for families and ritual participants to gather during cremation rites, and there were murals on the walls, which I'll come back to in a minute because I think those murals are really great. Uh, this temple usually handled one to two funerals a day, always in the morning. It was pretty well staffed. Uh, the lay ritual specialists who are called Acha, uh, the more pr- more typical pronunciation outside of Cambodia would be Acharya, but Acha is how it's pronounced. Uh, those folks do most of the funeral ritual work, and so it's with them that I spent most of my time. Um, those murals were were a lot of fun in this first temple. Uh, there was a set of murals which indicated good and bad behaviors and their outcomes. Uh, and so bad behaviors, which led to hell and poor rebirths included, appeared to include things like drinking at nightclubs, but also living in a rural area and breastfeeding, mm-hmm. um, and their opposites, which clearly led to heaven and, and good rebirths were things like a quiet family life in a very middle-class looking apartment with televisions and couches, um, city life. And bottle feeding, which was which was just fascinating to me. There was a very sort of heavy normative modern impulse in these murals. Yeah, I remember being surprised by the bottle feeding versus breastfeeding because it's sort <laughs> of so opposite of you know contemporary American sort of parenting trends. But it was a trip, yeah. Yeah. You know. So that second temple though was was very different. Um, it was also in the city, also part of the Mahanikai era. Um, I wanted to make sure that I had a class contrast of the temples to understand, you know, di- different styles of, of Cambodian Buddhism and, and what class, what impact class would have on them. Um, it was a very impoverished temple for a city temple. And the elderly abbot had kind of a cantankerous reputation, though he was always pretty fine with me. Um, and he was always engaged in conflicts with the funerary at the temple and their patrons. And this was the second issue that I chose that caused me to choose the second temple. Uh, This other temple had a contract with the city police to dispose of all the unclaimed bodies in the city. So unclaimed corpses from city hospitals, traffic accident victims, etc. All of these were delivered to this temple. So this cremation ground was staffed with fewer acha. All of them had received their positions, not on the basis of their religious knowledge, but on their connection to military units with whom they'd served previously. Yeah. The grounds were far less impressive. Uh, the other temple's paved grounds were cleaned daily, but this temple's grounds were just dirt, which mm-hmm. made the rainy season pretty pretty rough. Yeah. <laughs> and the other the other temple uh, handled about one one to two ritual cremations a day, whereas this one handled one ritual cremation. Uh, but they cremated a number of unclaimed bodies every afternoon without ritual. Yeah. So er, early on. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of talk in this book about the Cambodian um, Buddhist funeral. And um, early on in, in talking about this, you note that the individual in Cambodian Buddhism, the individual is thought to possess consciousness. This is the Vinyana, the one of the five aggregates that Buddhism says make up the self. But also nine, that the individual is um, possesses not only this consciousness, but also 19 animating spirits called Brailing. Brailing? Brailing. Brailing. Yep. So what are these Berlung and why are they important specifically in the context of the funeral? Yeah. So Berlung are awesome. <laughs> yes, Vinyana is, or, or as it's pronounced in Khmer, Vinyan, 
um, vijnana are there, and that is typically roughly considered sort of the moral consciousness. It's that which takes rebirth and has a multi-life career. Uh, the Brelung are something different. Uh, and and they're, they're interesting. I like to teach about the Brelung uh, to my students. Uh, this would be somewhat analogous to those who have studied in Thailand or Laos uh, to the Kwan. Uh, there's very similar ritual, Sukwan. Uh, the ritual in Cambodia is called Hao Perlung, and it means the same thing, calling spirits. Uh, so folks who grow up in Abrahamic traditions tend to assume that humans everywhere think of themselves as having a singular essential self. Uh, Buddhist philosophy attacks this notion very explicitly, but but that doesn't necessarily trickle down to all Buddhists everywhere, right? Um, however... Folks oftentimes struggle with the, th- with the thought that there's not just one soul in the Cambodian imagination, but a consciousness and then these 19 spirits. And all of those are in one person, right? And how many parts can we really have? Uh, and so this, this kind of throws people for a loop a little bit. Of course, there's no limit to how many parts we can have. We can decompose ourselves indefinitely if we like. Uh, but Cambodians tend to imagine themselves as composed partly of this Buddhist moral consciousness, the vinyana. And these 19 spirits of the Prolung. The Prolung, by the way, seem to come from the two words, pra, which means sacred or revered, and lung, which is linga. And so may have a origin in Shaivite uh, ritual and worship uh, in a much earlier period. The distinction between Vinyana and Prolung is pretty interesting. Uh, whereas the Vinyana takes rebirth, the Prolung do not. So at the moment of death, the Berlung just kind of disappear. And you get different different accounts about what happens to the Berlung after death. But the most common is that they disperse into the wild places of the world. No longer bound together by the body or moral consciousness, they tend to succumb to entropy and return to the deep waters, high mountains, and dense forests where they're imagined to come from. And this is the same notion that explains a lot of illness in Cambodian imagination. Uh, the vinyana has nowhere to go during a life. Vinyan, I should say, has nowhere to go during a life. It's all bound up with the body. But during a person's life, the prolung can leave. And this is one of the reasons that is considered to be a cause of illness. It happens especially if you have a terrible fright or have a fall or some sort of accident. The prolung might be jarred out of the body and, and escape. And the way to fix that is to call the prolung back into the body. And that's a particular ritual. And once they're back in the body, they're bound into place by tying a special thread around the patient's wrist. And so the vinyana and the prolung are these two different sorts of parts of the person, all of which have to be dealt with in death. Uh, So the vinyana is explicitly manipulated in a funeral ritual. Right. It's uh, it's considered to take rebirth, depending on who you talk to. Very modernist monks will argue that what takes what takes rebirth is actually the consciousness at the moment of death and that it happens immediately. More people tend to think that there is a seven day waiting period after death and before the uh, vinyana takes rebirth. It's unclear where that seven day period seems to come from. Uh, but the Berlung are not explicitly discussed. Where do the Berlung go? What happens to them? That's that's not really explicitly discussed. It may or may not be a performed issue, however. Uh, while they don't discuss it in funeral rituals, it may be part of what is being bound into place. 
that is very unclear. Great. Here I can't um, ask you to reproduce your long, rich, and detailed description of the Cambodian funeral and listeners who want to read Davis's rich um, and vivid account should refer to the book itself, particularly chapter two. But I would like to ask you about what you identify as two central themes of the funeral. And the first of these is binding, uh, both real and symbolic, of the corpse. And second is an attempt to confuse the corpse such that it cannot find its way back home. So I was wondering if you could explain uh, these two themes a bit more and how they actually appear in the uh, funerary practice. Sure. Uh, both the Acha and monks perform acts that I, that I refer to as binding in the book. Uh, when a person dies, the Acha is usually the primary go-between and the primary workhorse, the person who deals with the family and the corpse most frequently. Monks actually make a very, very short pit stop in the funeral, do a chant. It's a central and important chant. It's not a funeral without it, but they don't do most of the work, most of the labor. Um, the Acha does. So the Acha will go and prepare the corpse in a number of ways. There's all sorts of things that happen. But one of the things that happens is that he will take special special string and he will make three bindings around the corpse. He will tie the corpse usually at the neck, the chest, and the legs and tying those together around the body. And then sometimes he'll bind those three bindings together uh, uh, on a uh, vertical axis of the body. Um. And then when the monks get involved, they will oftentimes stand, they usually stand around the coffin, around the corpse. And that's when they chant the chant, which is intended to sort of stand in for the Abhidharma. Uh, it is a way of understanding the decomposition of a person at death. And to a certain extent, understanding how those things might be re reconstituted. So the binding is done both physically with string by the Acha and symbolically by monks who uh, surround and create a border around the corpse during a key moment of chanting. Uh, as for confusing the corpse, that's much more explicit in a number of ways. Um, there's a significant fear of the dead in Cambodia. Uh, ghosts are not thought of usually as positive spirit visitations. Um, instead, the death are assumed to have undergone some sort of malevolent transformation. And the way this is was most efficiently explained to me was that uh, the recently dead are like those elderly family members who have who experienced dementia. Um, they may have been wonderful people before. They may still be wonderful people, but they aren't really in control. And they tend to say things or do things that might hurt the people they love. And so there's a distortion of the personality, which makes them dangerous. Um, so you don't want the dead to come back. <laughs> you don't want them to come back. Not, not this way. Uh, so you have to confuse them because they're paying attention and they probably want to come back home. So here's three quick ways that people usually use to explicitly confuse the corpse. And when I say explicitly, I mean, that's what they're telling me the reason they're doing it. The corpse is usually dressed with the shirt on backwards. Uh, and the way they talk about this is buttons on the back. So uh, you can already imagine that this was probably not an ancient tradition since buttons are a relatively new phenomenon uh, and probably a Chinese one. Uh, it probably came in with Chinese immigrants. However, um, 
they, they do it. So it's, it's the body is dressed with the shirt on backwards. Uh, in houses with thatch walls, so again, much more ancient types of, and, and poor these days, types of housing, uh, the body will be removed from the side of the wall so that it doesn't go through the front door. It takes a different path out so that it can't come back. And finally, the corpse is paraded feet first to the cremation grounds so that, uh, assumingly, so that it will be le- less able to retrace its path back to the family home. Yeah, very clever of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You, you note that the whole process of the funeral, which can take several days or even longer, transforms a potentially unsettled and malevolent spirit into an ancestor. That is, a spirit that is not only benevolent, but which can be prayed to for this worldly benefits. So how does the funeral or how do the funeral and related rituals actually achieve this transformation of malevolent spirit to um, benevolent ancestor? The briefest possible answer is cremation. Um, The much longer answer is that uh, cremation goes hand in hand with a number of other acts which are considered to, my word would be domesticate, but also perhaps cultivate and turn into or transform into a benevolent ancestor. Um, And so... Cremation is the big part, and and perhaps here we can have recourse to a more general anthropological point of view. Uh, Anthropologists have often argued that funeral rituals that transform corpses into bones serve a purifying function for survivors. Uh, They eliminate the decaying and the soft parts of the body and leave only the solid white bones. Uh, Perhaps this helps people deal with the sheer discomfort in handling a decomposing body. Uh, In Cambodian funerals, the words used to refer to the human remains of a person after cremation uh, is uh, relics, whereas Mm -hmm. before it's corpse uh, Mm -hmm. or even kmawit, which is a word that means both corpse and ghost. Um, Until that point, however, it's a considerable figure of concern and the family attempts to confuse it and keep it from coming back. But afterwards, the bones are referred to as relics. The deceased becomes one of the jidon jidon. Da, which is grandmothers and grandfathers, ancestors, that one can ask for assistance. And uh, urns, which contain the bones and some ashes, are oftentimes considered to have personalities bound within them. So in a famous uh, stupa to the great patriarch Samdaik Chunat, uh, in his, the basement of that stupa, there are uh, reliquary areas where families can buy little areas to store relics of their family. There's a great story in there about somebody who put two relics of family members who didn't like each other into a single box. And the, re- the urns started fighting, and they would clank against each other and knock each other over until people took them out and put them into separate ones. So there's a sense of continuity in the actual remains, and that these remains have to be in an urn, and that that urn is bound shut by the acha with special string. So... There's the anthropological aspect of getting rid of that which rots, right? The the corpse flesh, right? And leaving only that which is dry and permanent. There's also the issue of sort of transforming a spirit that one loved, but of which one now is afraid, into a new source of ancestral worship and – worship is probably not the right word – ancestral respect and engagement. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's quite – that's quite lovely in some ways. It's definitely, you know, idiosyncratic to this. Uh, 
there's also another sort of another example, which is not specific to funerals, but which is perhaps even more uh, sort of exemplary in terms of describing how Buddhist monks and rituals can transform the dead. And this is much more explicit. And this is the the figure of the prite or the preta, the hungry ghost. The hungry ghost is a person who uh, dies and it results in a rebirth where they have unsatisfied desires, uh, horrible unsatisfied desires. They're usually described as starving, corpse-like, incapable of eating. Uh, their necks are too skinny, or sometimes if they get any, ma- any food to their mouth, it bursts into flame right away. Um, it's, quite, it's quite sad. Uh, and all the way back in the period when Buddhism was first starting in India, it, there was already an Indic language pun, which was involved in the Brahminist uh, transformation of Preta, these hungry ghosts, into Pitra, uh, revered ancestors. Uh, that seems to have been uh, perhaps related to the original uh, role of monks in transforming the painful and uh, pained dead into revered ancestors. Uh, it's unclear. I think the scholar James Eggie uh, wrote a book called The Religious Giving and the Invention of Karma. And he notes that this may actually be one of the earliest parts of the Pali Canon. Uh, so it's also one of the few places, I think the only place, where a the transfer of merit from the living to the dead results in an immediate transformation of the dead. So that's uh, those are two aspects of the way in which monk activity can beneficently transform the dead for the living. Because yeah. it's in these relationships with the dead that the living get much of their, uh, get many of their blessings and their health. Yeah. Great. So moving on a bit in the third chapter of the book, and this is sort of where for me, you sort of start to take on this much broader, almost sort of, I don't know, civilizational approach to Buddhism, which I really appreciate. Um, but in this chapter, you introduce a dichotomy that is central really to the entire book. Um, and you argue uh, to Khmer culture. And that's the dichotomy between civilization and the wild. So the former is characteristic of the lowlands, of people living in the lowlands, of the field and agriculture, and of Buddhism. Civilization is ordered and moral and is associated with life. By contrast, the wild, civilization's opposite, is associated with the highlands and the people living there, with the forest and with the spirits. It is amoral or immoral, it is chaotic, and it is associated as well with death. And I should be very clear that this is um, all from the perspective of the lowland uh, imagination. So in the book that we're discussing, Death Power, you argue that rice agricultural uh, rice agriculture is central in organizing the imagined relationship between these two uh, realms. Could you explain a bit? How is it so? Sure. Um, thanks for making it very clear that this is not my dichotomy, but a dichotomy I'm trying to describe that exists within the Cambodian imagination. It's important. Um, the relationship between lowland and highland cultures in mainland Southeast Asia is pretty well understood in many ways, but some of the details uh, are becoming clearer as a consequence of recent scholarship. And some of those details are things like the widespread enslavement of highland people by lowlanders uh, throughout mainland Southeast Asian history. 
part of this whole dichotomy is simply environmental. It's in the lowlands and the river valleys that rice can be grown most easily. Uh, some Americans or other listeners might be thinking of the amazing rice growing terraces of, of Vietnam uh, and should understand that that there are distinct agricultural styles, agricultures, if you will, and that Cambodian agricultural styles rely on rain fed and bunded rice fields rather than the manipulation of rivers or terraces into irrigation. So it's quite different. As a consequence, Khmer agriculture really developed in the lowlands, and that means rice developed in the lowlands. And the thing about grain production is that you can produce surpluses, which can be transported. Uh, that's not really as true of vegetables, for instance. It's hard to transport vegetables over long distances. So rice quickly became a major commodity and a commodity which was traded uh, by the empires and those who, who sort of organized their production. There are types of rice that grow in the highlands. Uh, these are types of dry rice. And these are oftentimes explicitly associated by the lowland Khmer with ethnic minority groups mm. and dis who discuss these types of food as major indices of their lack of civilization. So wet, patty, fixed field rice production has really been a matter of lowland groups. Another point to make is that we oftentimes think today of rice as the staple food of Asia. It's common and cheap, but that's a very modern notion. Mm -hmm. uh, throughout Asian history, rice has, has been the dominant commodity crop, but the peasants who grow it have oftentimes not had easy access to eating it. Mm -hmm. Rice as a dry grain was this movable, taxable resource, and the empires of the mainland marched, won, and lost on the basis of the rice that they could tax from the peasants. Mm -hmm. um, there's great work on this in Japan uh, as well. Um, the other thing is that farming is so hard. It's really hard and dangerous work. Uh, even in the United States, I grew up knowing a lot of farmers who were missing limbs because of farm accidents that took place far from medical care. I watched as the family farm crisis destroyed multi-generational family farms and transformed American agriculture. In Cambodia, the situation is even more dire. Um, obtaining enough seed to plant, making sure that the rains come at the right time and in the right amount, finding enough labor to handle the demands of transplanting and harvesting, those are already huge challenges. When you consider that most farmers are essentially betting all the wealth they have every year on the next year's harvest being successful, it's really obviously very precarious. That's the context. So farming has always been difficult, dangerous, and risky for farmers, and it's a lot of work. Where did all this work come from? Well, historically, the labor for these fields was provided through a mix of formerly free peasant farmers and slaves. And these slaves were usually captured in war or enslaving raids of the highland areas. As early as the pre-Ancorian period, we have lists of field slaves, almost entirely mothers and children, who were taken from upland areas. So this is an extended argument in my book, um, the role of hierarchy and um, enslavement and the notion of a moral geography. Uh, but the core of it is that in Cambodia, the places of the wilderness are seen as places of enormous but uncivilized power. Mm -hmm. The animating spirits of the Berlum go there when they get free of a body. It's where the most powerful and terrifying predators and spirits alike live. It's also where forest sages and monks go to expand their ascetic powers through sort of training and confronting these dangers. Kings are imagined to be able to enter the forests and return with great and empowering treasures, you know. And this is where slavers went to capture labor for lowland civilizations. Mm -hmm. So 
in my work, I argue that it's not just that the Cambodian imagination strongly and sharply divides the world into domesticated and wild, but that it imagines a precise relationship of power that relates the two. The civilized can enter the forest and remove items of great power from them and put those things to work. And these could be magical spirits, magical plants called pratil, or slaves. And so the labor needs of the lowland civilization, and the dominant labor need was rice production, create a relationship between the lowlands and the highlands in which capture and slavery play a really significant role. Yeah, and I think you do a nice job of making this, describing very clearly, and then also making clear the distinction between the actual historical relationship between lowlands and highlands, and then um, these sort of imagined categories of lowland and highland and the imagined relationship between the two from the side of the Cambodian sort of lowland imagination. Um, One of the things you do that I I should actually mention for readers is at the end of each chapter, you include a short sort of story, either um, a story coming out of some sort of aspect of Cambodian culture or a story um, about your own ethnographic fieldwork that illustrates a particular point you're trying to make. So here I wonder if you might uh, recount the story of, is it Souk? Oh, Souk, yeah. Yeah. Souk so, so. is how you I should mention that my transliteration uh, in this book uh, is intended to make the words accessible to people who study Buddhism but are, don't know Khmer. I see. If I, was tra- if I was transcribing this into, or transliterating this into a system which would replicate the sounds of Cambodian language. Yeah. Uh, nobody who studies Buddhism would recognize the words. I see. So I'm, I'm defaulting to uh, more standard pronunciation typically, okay. but the way in which this would be pronounced in Khmer, now that I've done this boring thing is. So <laughs> okay. great. Okay. So, so the story of Sok is great. Um, so I, I've mentioned that the relationship between the uplands and lowlands is really about labor power in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that labor has historically been far more valuable than land in Southeast Asia. It's labor that was difficult to gather, to put to work, and especially to keep in place. Uh, right. You may know the, the phrase, you know, how do you keep them down on the farm when they've seen the lights of the big city? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's not limited to mid-America. Uh, that is, that's a reality for farmers all over the world. Yeah. Uh, so James Scott and others have pointed over the last decade or so that the mountain chains of Asia are not just places where lowlanders came from. They're places that lowlanders oftentimes escape to. Mm. And that's because the wilderness was everywhere and farming was tough and fleeing to a life of in the wild was always a possibility and probably a pretty attractive one at times. Yeah. And so the story of Sook comes out of this. Uh, it's a story that was composed by a Cambodian Buddhist elite man in the late 19th century as part of a series of stories which were intended to teach sort of moral education to Cambodians under colonial rule. Um, in that way, it's sort of like Aesop's fables to a certain extent. The story starts in the highlands of Cambodia with a supposedly savage group. The word the author uses is Penong, which carries a double meaning of savage and slave in Cambodian. And it's a word used by Khmer both as a standard term for all upland groups, as well as an insult to other Khmer with whom they may be fighting. So it's, it's a pretty pejorative term. Um, Sook is described as this young kid who's growing up in this supposedly uncivilized environment. Uh, the author says that Sook one day was guarding his family's dry upland rice plot in the deep forest when somebody in his family was accused of witchcraft. 
According to the author, the customs of this group were to murder all the witches' relatives to the seventh generation. Um, that seventh generation thing is already a key that we're basically projecting lowland norms onto Highlanders. Um, but there that is. All Sook's family were murdered. Uh, Sook escaped, however. He was hiding in the branches of the jungle, and then he ran away down the mountains. At first, he's helped by a merchant who speaks his language and brings him down the mountain a ways. As he goes, he meets people who are increasingly civilized. The farther down the mountain he goes, more people speak Cambodian. More people are Buddhist. They eat the kind of rice from the lowlands. Finally, the merchant and Sook settle in the lowlands, where Sook serves his new master, uh, and the quote is, so that he would never be irritated. And according to the story, eventually the merchant sent Sook to ordain as a Buddhist monk, and Sook becomes an intelligent and educated monk. So it's a story of a cultural success. It's an immigration story in a lot of ways, right? Um, this person who is conceived of as having all these negative characteristics of being from a bunch of savages with no education and no religion and no decent agriculture, and they don't even know how to eat decent rice – comes down out of the mountains out of a tragic situation caused by his own people who keep murdering each other and is saved by a merchant who kindly accepts him as a servant and then sends him off to become a moral exemplar. It's, it's a very nice story in that sense. Of course, there's some issues. <laughs> um, it's very unlikely um, historically that stuff went the way it, this looks, right? The story tends to take on a different aspect when looked at from a general historical point of view. It mirrors the historic slave raids of mainland Southeast Asia, the murder of a whole family, the abduction and removal from the highlands of the children, the subsequent service to new masters and new morals. Yeah. Great. So this idea of binding that is quite central to chapter three is also a theme that really runs throughout your book. Um, and I should emphasize to listeners that I really can't do it justice and you'll have to read the book yourself to see how Davis sort of weaves this, uh, th theme throughout and shows its centrality, um, to really Cambodian Buddhism, um, and culture. So, and in the third chapter, you specifically, you're specifically talking about the binding of rice, the binding of water, and the binding of people. So how does this binding relate to, and of course the binding of water is um, for agriculture, and then the binding of people is slavery. Um, also for agriculture. <laughs> yeah, and also for agriculture, right. Um, so how does this relate to the dichotomy between civilization and the wild, between life and death? Yeah, I think that it's, Thank you for, for focusing on the, the theme of binding here, because it is really something that ties a lot of the arguments together. Um, I do argue that it appears at the heart of the Cambodian imagination of power in general. So when we do fixed field rice agriculture in Cambodia, uh, water is kept in the fields by bunded earth, which is sort of you create these little walls around the rice field and the rain fills it up. Um, and it's this corralling and keeping of the water in the field that provides the power to grow rice. Uh, Berlung are bound into the body and provide health. Uh, slaves are captured from the forests and bound into service, and sometimes physically so. Finally, relics of the dead are collected and bound into urns at the end of funeral rituals. 
Uh, at the end of the funeral ritual, the Acha uses a special thread. That's the same one that's used to bind Berlunga to people's bodies and to tie corpses, to bind the urn shut. And so it's this binding that really seems to tie a lot of these exercises and creations of power together. Mm-hmm. The way in which I see it sort of connecting to this dichotomy of this moral geography between wild and, and domestic is that it's this process through which lowland heroes, if you will, go into the wild areas and return with power that they have captured, mm-hmm. bound, and rendered into something that they can use. Um, and so it's that that's the process, really. Sure. And so the next question I wanted to ask is somewhat related, though, not obviously so. And you, you draw on the work of Stephen Collins and a number of other scholars who look at the relationship between agriculture and social organization. Um, and you note that Buddhism can only exist in a society in which there's an agricultural surplus and a concomitant social hierarchy, the hierarchy made possible by the agricultural surplus. And you then observe that Buddhism then plays a role in moralizing the social hierarchy. So what exactly does this look like in the case of Cambodia? Sure. Um, I should be clear that I I think this is true of almost everything we tend to call religion. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you have priests and rulers, or as Ernest Gellner referred to them, uh, thugs and legitimators, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, if you have these people, they they aren't producing their own food. Uh, which means they need to be fed by somebody else, which means somebody else needs to make more food. So uh, the production of agricultural surplus and social hierarchy go together, and that's not by any means limited to Buddhism. But religions do have a tendency to legitimate the social hierarchies that they are found while also criticizing and commenting on them. It's not a one-way street either. Uh, In Cambodia, as I've indicated, the moral geography is – is heavily mapped by opposed notions of the wild and the civil or the domestic. And Buddhism maps the same way. Historically and at the present time, monks and temples are sort of an index of lowland civilization. For members of the lowland groups, monks tend to be paragons or at least hopefully good examples of morality. Uh, Kings themselves are not great moral representatives in Buddhism, since they explicitly must engage in the sorts of violent acts that Buddhist monks renounce. So the presence of temples and monks in the lowlands associates these areas, their styles of life, including rice agriculture, with morality, and the wilds with immorality. immorality. So these themes come up repeatedly in sermons and moral fables and folktales. The forest is always powerful and amoral. Uh, The lowlands are always places where we must work, where life is full of predictable suffering. And as a result, the forest is not only amoral, but oftentimes quite alluring. It creates this moral contradiction that drives a lot of the stories and ways of imagining the world in Cambodia. So Buddhism plays this role of sort of, with reference to the the discussion we've had about highland and lowland and slavery, it plays this role of sort of indicating that we here in the lowland are where morals exist, where the teaching of the Buddha exists. And to the extent that we can move up the mountains and convert the highlands into being good Buddhists and farmers— we are succeeding to the extent that those temples retreat down the mountains and into the river valleys. Buddhism is on the wane. Mm-hmm. Great. Thanks. The, so um, moving on a bit in chapter four, you look at the Sema ritual 
and the way in which these ceremonies combine the symbolism of two diametrically opposed values, that of violence and that of giving. So one normally thinks of violence as a concern of the king, while giving is instead a Buddhist value. But in the Sima ceremony, you argue it's not exactly so. So would you explain would you please explain how, um, in this context, Buddhist monks come to be associated with both? Sure. These are great questions. Uh, thanks for the close reading there. Um, it's absolutely correct that we should think of the relationship between kings and their subjects as predicated on violence as the power or even the value of the king. This is king's explicit job, to create and maintain social order, to wage wars, hopefully only defensive ones, and more. Kings offer their moral submission to Buddhist monks, however. As violence is the value of the relationship between kings and their subjects, giving or freely receiving gifts is the power or value of the Buddhist community. The creation of a ritually empowered space to perform Buddhist rituals and values is called a Sema ceremony, and it conforms to the logic I've already expressed. There's a capture of power and the binding of that power into a productive use. I'll explain that in a second. In the Sema ceremony, there's also the alienation of that power from the person who creates it, making the binding of the power itself a sort of gift to the Sangha. Let me explain all that, because that's a little abstract. So the word Sema means boundary, and the Sema ritual in Cambodia involves the burial of nine large stones in a boundary around the central temple building, and the, the last or ninth stone in the center of the temple. The pits for the stones are dug, and the stones are suspended from a post that lies across the pit. The king or his agents, today it's usually politicians, occasionally businessmen, are invited to play the violent role of using a cudgel and a machete to sever the string. And this is that same special string I keep mentioning, which is called umbah. And this is where that string all comes from, is from these Sema ceremonies. And when they sever the string, those stones drop to the bottom of the pits. The monks, in turn, perform the role of the peaceful sangha who receive the gifts. So the ritual creates a space that permits monks to do their formal work, uh, including becoming ordained. Ordinations are not, are not valid without an established boundary, a sema. And therefore, the monk's presence serves as a basis of social morality. This is the moment in which the temple is actually considered enlivened. Uh, so at this point, novice monks are capable of entering into this building. They're forbidden from it previously. Um, and ordinations after this point taken, that take place within this will be considered valid. Now, modernist monks tend to deny this, but one of the most frequent explanations one encounters for the origins of the Sema ritual, and those stones in particular, is that it used to be a form of human sacrifice, in which victims were beheaded and their bodies buried in the foundations of buildings, so that their spirits, strong and malevolent spirits as a consequence of their violent deaths, could be put to use in protecting the building and its inhabitants. <clears throat> this is sometimes called foundation sacrifice. Um, the spirit that's imagined to be captured in the temple building is called a prie, prai, in the pedestal. And it's sometimes imagined to be bound into the pedestal on which the main Buddha image is seated. So there's this malevolent, dangerous spirit bound into this temple building, which protects the temple building. Historically, the Sema ritual also removes the temple lands from the king's tax base and adds it to the temple's uh, tax base, temp the lands, so the temple can basically have whatever comes in its land, whether it's rice production or whatever. So participating in this ritual dramatizes the king's own powers of violence and the monk's peaceful conquest of violence, but also 
puts them in a particular relationship. Uh, the violence is the gift to the Sangha. Without the sacrifice, the Sangha is not protected. And so the king's violence is necessary. But the, but the final production of this giving uh, asserts that the final value in the temple is that of giving, dan, for Buddhism. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, I should, let me mention one more thing, if I may. Sure, please. Uh, I, I always want to make very clear. Uh, many Cambodians insist that human sacrifice used to be a thing that they did. Yeah. As far as I'm aware, there is absolutely no archaeological evidence for widespread foundation sacrifice in Cambodian history. There is a record of some human sacrifice taking place in the late 19th century, but the context of that is much more similar to a criminal execution than a human sacrifice. So we should be very, very careful when we use words like human sacrifice. In, in my book, I think I, I compare the human sacrifice that took place that we have documents of very directly to the sorts of ministrations that a Christian, uh, a Christian chaplain in a prison might do for a person facing the death penalty, mm-hmm. right? So it's certainly the, the case that people were killed and that there was meaning associated with this. Mm-hmm. Whether If we want to call that human sacrifice in Cambodia, we might have to start calling the death penalty in the United States human sacrifice as well. So we're just I should let the listeners know we're kind of jumping in the book a little and in the interest of time and jumping quite a bit ahead. There's a lot we're skipping. But later in the book, in the second half, at one point, you turn your attention to the Pajumpinda ritual, <laughs> if that's the correct pronunciation, which is the most important and popular annual Buddhist ritual in Cambodia. At the time of the year when the ritual takes place, the ancestors, portrayed as hungry ghosts, Preta um, in this case, are said to come back to the ancestral village. The ritual entails exchange between the living and the dead. The living feed rice to the dead, while the dead, in turn, bestow blessings on the living, uh, both then and I suppose throughout the year. I want to ask what the significance of this particular ritual is for your study, um, and more specifically, what role Buddhist monks play in this ritual. What are the Buddhist monks doing, or what is Buddhism doing that lay people cannot? Sure. The short answer to this is that Buddhist monks here play the role they always play, which is as intermediaries in who can send merit to the dead. So there's really nothing terribly unusual about the role of of Buddhist monks in this ritual. Uh, Without Buddhist monks as intermediaries, you just can't get the merit to the dead and you can't affect their their situation positively. So the Pchumban ritual uh, is a – and Pchumban means the gathering of rice balls. Um, It's a 15-day holiday that takes place shortly before the end of the rainy season. And it's the period in which rice experiences its most rapid upward growth. And it's a lull in the rice labor cycle. So people are kind of, they don't have as much work to do right at that point. Uh, At that period, the king of hell, Yamaraja, Yumariya, is supposed to throw open the gates of hell and all the hungry ghosts, who are these beings that we talked about earlier, uh, flood back into the villages where they lived when they were alive. Their descendants are supposed to visit as many temples as possible during this period and to offer them gifts at each. If the spirits look for gifts at seven temples without finding any, they will curse their descendants for the next year, making harvests fail, family members will get sick, etc. Um, oftentimes, this is just described as, you know, we can't do business, we can't make any money. Um, 
If, on the other hand, they find an offering, they immediately transform into a sort of angel. Uh, so their suffering is over and they experience all the wonderful things of being a a blessed spirit of sorts, you know, and as an angel, they're capable of bestowing blessings on their descendants. And this results in good harvests and good health. Um, so monks come into the equation when you ask the question, how does the merit get to the dead? And this is, you know, that standard thing. Buddhist monks are usually considered fields of merit. That's the common metaphor used and it comes from Buddhism itself. I, I should note that in Cambodia, I rarely actually heard the metaphor field of merit spoken by Cambodian monks. Uh, I more frequently heard them refer to themselves as factories, uh, factories of merit, which I thought was, was great, right? They aren't the workers in the factories, but they are the factories themselves, right? They are the means of production when it comes to merit. Uh, so without them, merit doesn't really get made effectively. According to Orthodox belief, apparently, merit can't be transferred to the dead at all, Uh and, you know, most people accept that the monks can do some merit transfer. Uh, I think that the idea that you can't transfer merit at all is probably a different discussion. Uh, so if one wants to fulfill one's familial responsibilities to deceased ancestors and receive their blessings every year during Pachumban, you go to a temple and you offer gifts to the monks in the names of the deceased family members, as well as all relatives to the seventh generation. This makes merit. And then one dedicates that merit in a chant led by the monks to the deceased. By the way, that chant is also the same central chant that monks use in funerals. Um, yeah, I think that's probably. Yeah, sure. There's just again for listeners, there's actually a lot in that chapter that's very interesting in how this um, how this also ritual has slightly changed and uh, with the um, recent phenomenon of uh, many of young people from the village going to the city to work and then coming back f just for the uh, for the ceremony, but um, you don't have to read the book for that. <laughs> so skipping ahead a, a bit more, I want to I, I want to touch on something you talk about in the final chapter, where you point to a distinction made by some Cambodians, most often those of the Buddhist uh, modernist persuasion, uh, between Buddha sasana, so that's Buddhism. And what they call uh, Brahmanya Sasana, so Brahmanism, though not to be confused yeah. with the stuff that happens in India. So this echoes the dichotomy that you've observed uh, throughout the book up to this point, that between the civilized and the wild, the lowlands and the highlands, the field and the forest, Buddhist morality and non-Buddhist amorality or immorality. Uh, but here you make a very specific point about the relationship between these two imagined categories, and specifically about the origins of the category of, quote-unquote, Brahmanism. How do you understand the relationship between these two? This is, this is a tough part, right? Um, because I have to be very precise about what I mean by the words. Uh, when we use the word Brahmanism, oftentimes we will think... Uh, those of us without specific reference to Cambodia will think, you know, oh, ancient Indian religion associated with Brahmins. Well, that ancient Indian religion associated with Brahmins was never in Cambodia. Uh, there were, you know, what we might call Hindu uh, devotional things. There may have been some people who called themselves Brahmins, although they were not caste-based identity groups. Um, so we don't mean Brahmanism in that sense. The word that I'm referring to when I use the word Brahmanism is the way Cambodians use these terms today. And as you said, they are terms which are categories which Cambodians use to divide the religious world 
into basically two parts. Uh, that is the Cambodian religious world, Buddhasasana and Brahmansasana, Brahmansasana. And most Cambodians will describe the evolution of Cambodian religious history in something like the following ways. Originally, they were animists and they were wild like the uplanders. Then they became Brahminists with the influence of Indian culture and Hinduism in the Khmer courts. And then they converted to Buddhism. And this is in many ways a story of progressive moralization, right? The more close they get, the farther they get away from animism and the closer they get to Buddhism, the more moral they are. Nowadays, of course, they say these are all mixed up together and everything is still present in, in Cambodia. And so one person I interviewed recently about the difference between Brahmanism and Buddhism told me that Buddhism is for morals and Brahmanism is for fighting. And she was an activist who's working on land, land theft issues. And so she was explaining to me why she was engaged in all these Brahmanist rituals when she considered herself a good Buddhist. Um, and so that was that was very interesting to me. So while Cambodians themselves describe the religions as all mixed up together, I saw a rather consistent way in which they described the relationship between the two. Brahmanism refers to the religious powers of the world and the life in which we can find ourselves now. It's the locus of magic, spiritual power, etc. It's primarily used to accomplish this worldly tasks. Buddhism, on the other hand, is the locus of morality, true goodness. It can be used to improve one's next rebirth or attain enlightenment if you're really ambitious. Uh, and so I would argue that Cambodians' notion of Buddhism, and, and I imply most Buddhisms throughout the world, rely heavily on this notion of a spirit realm or religion that is outside and opposed to Buddhism. That Buddhism requires wild spirits, people, and powers to tame and moralize. Without that work of taming and moralizing the wild of the world, I don't think there is a Buddhism. <laughs> uh, in Cambodia, the role of the wild and powerful is represented in this category of Brahmanism, Brahmin Sasana. So all the ghosts and dangerous spirits, and as well as also the, the positive spirits, uh, sage spirits, tutelary spirits, gods, all these get pushed into the category of Brahmanism, uh, purifying increasingly what they mean by Buddhism into something very similar to the modernist Buddhist project that we, we've talked about in some ways. And so there's this relationship between the two, and it, it's an increasingly clear moral distinction. Uh, they are opposed to each other in the sense that one must be one or the other, but they're definitely opposed to each other in the sense that uh, you use them for different things. And yeah. my argument is that without this notion of Brahmanism as a wild area of magic, Buddhism would have very little uh, to work on. Yeah. And so Buddhism requires these categories to tame. Yeah, that's, yeah, that sort of reminds me of something I really liked about this book was that because although the ethnographic detail is, you know, all there and very rich, uh, you talk, you sort of explain that de detail in these broader sort of thematic, with regard to these broader themes such that, you know, someone coming from study of Tibetan Buddhism or Japanese Buddhism or whatnot can really sort of take away a lot from this book. As I was reading it, I thought back to sort of examples of, from, you know, far-flung Buddhist lands. Um, yeah. So Thank you. I, I tried real hard to make it accessible. <laughs> so, so the, um, gosh, there's so much more to discuss. Um, I just want to 
tell listeners they have to look at uh, near the end of the book when you talk about the Coon Croc amulet and the process <laughs> by which it's made that involves ripping a fetus from a pregnant woman, um, sort of real or symbolic, which is not quite known. Um, and, but uh, in the interest of time, I just want to go on to the final question, which is um, if I wanted to ask if you're if there's anything that you're working on at the moment, now that this project is past. Yeah. Well, I've got, I tend to take a long time to finish my project. So I'm usually working at a number of them all at once. Uh, the book that I'm currently working on has the working title past lives, present comma tense, and is an ethnography of contemporary Cambodian rebirth, ritual, rebirth, uh, memory claims. So there's a number of people during my field work who I've had relationships with that at this point have extended over many years and, uh, they claim past life memory. Uh, some of them, uh, experienced their memory as children and ended up sort of putting multiple lot families together as a consequence. Uh, some of them experienced, uh, past life memory as children and their families went to great efforts to try and force them to forget uh, their past life memories. Other people use past life memory as a means of getting ahead politically or socially. And sometimes those are successful and sometimes not. And so that's that's the area that I'm working in right now. I'm quite excited about that work. Uh, beyond that, I'm also working on a project uh, which expands the notion of death power that I sort of create in the Cambodian context here and brings it to a broader set of religious phenomena. And that book will include uh, the work on Kennewick Man, the ancient one that I mentioned at the beginning of our mm. interview, as well as a case study on uh, Auschwitz Oświęcim in Poland mm. and contests over who gets to ritualize the dead there as well. Wow. Um, and then the book right after that, uh, is a book on social activism and religion in contemporary Cambodia. So I'll be dealing mostly with union activists, land grab activists, and um, politicians, wow. specifically political monks. So, uh, yeah. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot on your plate. Uh, we'll uh, look forward to interviewing you again, hopefully sooner rather than later. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of the interview. Um, I just want to thank you again for speaking with me today and also to thank our listeners for tuning in. And that's it for today's New Books in Buddhist Studies. See you next time. <laughs>